I want to begin with a question. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what does the Holy Spirit do? And what should be attributed to the Holy Spirit? And what should not be attributed to the Holy Spirit? And as believers, what should we know about life, the Christian life in the Spirit? I think this is an important topic in our day because so many things are said about the Holy Spirit and attributed to the Holy Spirit that are not biblical. And it is dangerous when many in the name of God make the Holy Spirit into a genie that will push forth whatever emotional whims they have at the moment. But scripture is very clear and Jesus is very clear in the role of the Holy Spirit in his ministry and in the life of believers. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on the Holy Spirit in these next several chapters, but specifically this week and next. And for us, how we view the Holy Spirit must be rooted in Scripture. And how we view our own Christian life comes from a healthy understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And in order to understand everything that comes after in the Gospel of John, especially chapter 14, 15, and 16, you must understand what Jesus is telling them and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the body. So this week, we're going to look at the Trinity in the Christian life, how the Father, Son, and Spirit inform who we are and how we live. And it's a life that is marked by prayer, love, obedience, and fellowship. Next week, we're going to look at the Trinity and our life in the world. The contrast of the truth and peace that is in Christ through the Holy Spirit and the world who cannot understand it. And that peace that is impossible outside of our God. And so what I want us to understand and I want us to get this. What it means, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that the love, obedience and fellowship that marks the Trinity is also to mark us. So what that means is the Son is never outside of the will of the Father. The Spirit is never in contradiction with the Son. They are in loving agreement at all times. And we are to be in loving agreement with our God according to His Word. And this is what it means to have life in Christ. This is the new covenant that was prophesied and proclaimed and that we live. A covenant where God dwells with His people. And we know God for who He is, Father, Son, and Spirit. We live in Christ to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Spirit. That is the Christian life. And what an incredible gift that we have. That God would come to us, dwell with us, and make His home with us. So I want to look at that this morning. So as you turn to your Bibles to John chapter 14, I just want to recap where we are. If you remember when Jesus starts this whole discourse before he washes the disciples feet, John gives us this parenthetical note, chapter 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father. So Jesus is approaching the cross, not with his mind on the pain and the punishment, but on the departure, because it is better to go and be with the father. Having loved his own who were in the his in the world, he loved them to the end. Everything we see in this discourse is out of love to his disciples and out of anticipation of going back to the Father. And he told us last week that I'm going to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms in my Father's house. 
For were not so, I would not have told you. So this going is, is not just for Jesus, but it's for the disciples as well. He's going to be with his father, being in the right hand of God in his full humanity, but yet preparing a place for believers, preparing a home. And that inner desire that each one of us have to belong and to have a home and to have an identity and to have a family is found in Christ, is found and solidified with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it glorifies the Father in heaven because it is according to his perfect plan that we have all this as believers. And what we must remember as we recap and before we read this passage, you cannot separate what we're going to read this morning apart from belief. The danger that happens so often, and I see it all the time, is that people will take scripture out of context. The reason we are expository teachers here is because scripture must interpret scripture. And if you pull one verse out and twist it into your own image, it becomes your gospel and a different gospel than what the word of God says. So we must read this in context and we must understand that none of this means anything if it is not based in belief. When Jesus says, believe in God and believe also in me, it means nothing. You cannot pray. You cannot talk about the Holy Spirit. You cannot please God unless you believe. This must be understood. And so when we look at what it means to ask of God and approach God, it must be in the foundation of belief. That's why our text begins in verse 12. But I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Because this is one thought. And we must look at these together. So I'm going to read John 14, starting in verse 10 through 24. John John 14.10 says this. Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live and you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Let's pray.
our Father in heaven. Jesus taught us how to pray that we would take the posture he took while he was on earth. That everything he do, he did and said would be to the glory of the Father in heaven. Not to exalt himself, although he had every right to, but to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as we approach our Father in heaven, let us approach him in obedience. Let us show our love for our God by the way we keep his commandments, by the way we love him, by the way we love one another. Let us be people who are marked by an indwelling spirit that teaches, guides, convicts. Because our God has made his home within us. A temple to his praise and his glory. Worship that only he can direct. But worship that he performs in us. By the Spirit. Through the name of the Son. To the glory of the Father. This is incredible. This is what it means to be a Christian. Let us never lose the awe of what it means to bear the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that your spirit would teach and guide us, remind us of all truth, help us in our weakness, utter words that we can't speak, stir the desire in us to grow in the knowledge and image of Christ. And be his witness to all the nations. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a passage of promise. Jesus is telling them in anticipation of what's about to happen. And he's going to tell them what's going to happen in a matter of hours, but also in a matter of 40 days when the Holy Spirit will come. So we're going to pick up where we left off. And remember this Everything here must be on the foundation of belief. Starting in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. Now, we don't get this in the English, but in the original language, this is a continual action. Whoever keeps believing, the one who believes in me continually. This is not just a emotional response. This is a continued action. This is a state of being. Whoever believes in me. Our belief is not empty. Our belief must be in Christ and rooted in him. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Let's talk about these works for just a moment. There's a lot of question about what this means. Jesus did a lot of physical works. We know that he multiplied bread and he walked on water. He did a lot of spiritual works as well. It was by his words And by the gospel, as Paul tells us, that hearts are transformed. And so we have to understand which of these is greater. Is it greater to do miracles? Or is it greater to see the dead come to life? Is it greater to multiply bread or to multiply holiness within the body? And I will argue that the greatest work is conversion. Because you can do all the miracles in the world, but if people are still dead, they're pointless. So when he says you will do greater works than me, you continue the work of the Son and the Father. Because as John tells us, Jesus' whole purpose for coming is that you believe in him. 
and that by believing you have eternal life. And so when he says that you will do greater works than these, what we need to get out of our American minds, and for us, you know, we are all, we, we have a super Walmart way of thinking, that it always has to be bigger, it always has to be better. Now this word in the original language does not simply mean greater in quality. No one has done greater quality works than Jesus did. But it also means greater in quantity is how we should view this. Because what we have to understand is that Jesus never left the Palestinian area. He never ministered outside of Israel. There there were no Gentile conversions under Jesus. He only went within a few miles of his home. But the greater works is when the gospel went out through the disciples. Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In Christ's lifetime, the gospel did not go to the entire Middle East. In Christ's lifetime, the gospel did not go to Europe. It did not go to Africa and Asia and to the Americas. Those great works of the gospel going out was done while Christ was not on earth. So, as our Savior had the foresight and knowledge to see that it is better that I go, And I send you my spirit because my spirit multiplies and the gospel will go out. So when we think of great, let's get this idea out of our head of putting on a bigger show of miracles for the sake of miracles and show for the sake of show. What is great is that the kingdom of God is multiplied on earth. That is great. And it is all because I'm going to the father. Jesus knew The father's plan was better than his. And even though the disciples wanted him to stay so bad, you're going to do great things because I leave. I mean, think of the expansion of the church. We are a fruit of that over the last 2000 years because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The church has spread from 12 to millions upon millions. Because Jesus went back to the Father and he is reigning over his church and interceding for his church. It is better that he is our high priest and our intercessor than just our teacher here on earth. And so he sent the Holy Spirit to help us in that. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is a continued theme in John. Whatever you ask in my name. And this is setting the precedent to approach the Father. Not Mary or some saint You don't have to pray by anything else. We have direct access to Jesus. Whatever you pray in my name. This is a big topic of discussion on Wednesday. As we look at the third commandment. And what it means to revere the Lord's name and how we should treat it. Because every commandment of our Decalogue has negative implications. There's also there's a positive expectation with that. And we looked at several passages of what it means to take on the name. We don't get this again in English, but in Hebrew, the same name for same word for name is reputation. So when you take on the name of the Lord or when you speak someone's name, you are associating that name with that reputation. So when we don't take the, the name of our Lord in vain. We don't profane his name or his reputation because it represents his very character, who he is. 
And so when Jesus says, you can now ask in my name, all of the authority, all of the power, all of the reverence that is in the name of God in the Old Testament is on Jesus, God in flesh. Whatever you ask in my name. We share in the responsibility and the association. And we take on that name. So Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. So I want to pose a question. When we think about our prayers, do our prayers stand the test of being asked in the name of Jesus? Do our prayers seek to further the name of Christ? Are we revering, honoring the name and reputation of our God when we pray or are we praying selfishly? Because if we ask in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus, are we seeking the Father's glory or our own in response to our prayers? Prayers in the name of the Son must be for the sake of the Son. Because as Jesus says here, if you ask in my name, I will do it. It's for the sake of God's glory. And and a few verses later in chapter 15, Jesus tells us what this means. He breaks this down a little bit. Look at John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you if you abide. By this, the father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit of our very prayer life will prove our discipleship. We will prove to be. We will come out on the other side looking like his disciples. And for the sake of God's glory, not to bring attention to ourselves, because we are abiding in him and in his word. You pray in his name, according to his name, and I will answer it. I will do it. So now that we understand how to approach him properly, know that it is in Christ's name we pray. It is to him we pray, and it is him who fulfills it. This is powerful. This is why we are a praying people. Because you know indeed that Christ himself hears and answers and attends to our prayers. As Deshaun said earlier, This is why we pray and we pray fervently because we can come to God because as the the psalmist has told us, he hears the cries of his people. And we know now who our prayers go to. As the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is our high priest and he's not a high priest who can't sympathize with us. He is a high priest who has been here, who has walked in flesh, who has been spit on and beaten for our sake. You think he knows when you're hurting? You think he knows what it means to be hurt and to be disappointed? He says he will answer. But he does not say how or when he will answer, which is probably the most difficult for us because we are impatient and we want control and we want a Burger King God. We want it our way. That's not, we're not guaranteed it our way. God in his perfect timing will answer prayers. But can we pray like Jesus prayed? Not my will, but yours be done. And so 
to emphasize this, he repeats it again in verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, if you ask, you believers, you disciples, you who abide in me, if you ask in my name, I will do it. There is emphasis in this repetition. We are encouraged to go to the Lord. And we see this pattern all throughout the New Testament. When you read through the book of Acts, look at the role that prayer plays in the mighty works. Prayer always precedes and follows the preaching of the gospel and the mighty works that we see in Acts. They are prayerful people. Paul again and again tells them he is praying for the churches in his letters. He is encouraging them to pray. He admonishes them for their prayer for the saints. This is something that marks the Christian and marks who we are. And Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, Anything in my name, according to my name, for my glory, I will give it. Anything? Jesus put $1,000 in my hand. Is that what it means? Is it for selfish gain? Is it add to me, Lord? It angers me when I see these false prophets on TV saying, you should be rich because this is what Jesus wants for you. You're a fool and a liar. That's why context is important. Because if we pull this out of context, it becomes selfish. It becomes man exalting, not Christ exalting. But we have to know this. Because those who ask in his name cannot be separated from verse 15. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is one thought. Those who love me are obedient. Love of Christ calls us to disobedience and selflessness, not selfishness. If you love me, again, this keep on loving me. You love me in obedience. You will keep my commandments. Many try to separate Christ from the Old Testament. He is always God. Not only is he the law keeper, he's the law giver. When we study the Ten Commandments, they are his commandments. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It is everything that came before, everything that is rooted in my very moral nature. But also this new one I give you, to love one another, which sums up all the rest. The love of Christ shows us what obedience is. And his obedience to the Father is our example of obedience. How can we not be obedient? He was obedient to the point of death on a cross. For us. How could we say no Lord. I'd rather do it my own way. And answers to prayer. Cannot be separated. From belief and obedience. If your prayer life is struggling. Do you desire. To be obedient as much as you desire. An answer to prayer. And it is a good prayer to say, Lord, help me be obedient. Help me to be faithful. Help me to love you in a way that honors you. Those are prayers in the name of Christ that he will answer. Prayers for new cars and new jobs, he may answer. That is still for our own glory when we pray for those things. But he knew we couldn't do it on our own. He knew in our own flesh we are incapable of praying this way. We are incapable of being obedient. So he gives us exactly what we need. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Any of you know this new covenant promise, but I want you 
to see the, the, the parallels here. Ezekiel 26, starting in verse 23. God desires for us to be obedient. God desires for us to keep his commandments. And how does he ensure that we do it? Look at first what God is concerned with here in verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. All this is for my name, which has been profaned among the nations. Who profaned it? Which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness. This is incredible. That God will be vindicated through us. The promise that, will, that is to come. I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes through you. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you should be clean for all your uncleanliness. This is justification language. You'll be clean forever. You'll be clean from all uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. Look who's doing the work here. Look who's driving this passage. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Why does he put his spirit within us? And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. From the beginning of time, this is the desire of God's plan for us to be his people and him to be our God and us to be obedient to him in love. This is why in our own Wickedness. God planned for the spirit to come. And this is what Jesus has in mind when he says, and I will ask the father. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not optional for the believer. If you love me, you will keep them. And I will ask the father. The greatest high priestly prayer. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. And he says another here. He's saying, I am your help. You have looked to me for help up until now, but I will send you another like me, equal to me. I will send you another. Everything you have looked for in me will be given in another, just like me. Another helper. Now, this word paraclete has been translated so many different ways in many different translations. And this is another one of those words that we can't, fully grasp in one English word. So the, the sense of this is one who is called to the side of. Uh, this has been translated as advocate, as counselor, as, as, as helper, as comforter. And all those are true in a sense, but they don't fully get what this is. So in, in the Greek culture, what would happen is uh, many people would not we didn't you didn't have a, a right to an attorney and there were public defenders and all that and if you got into any trouble you would you would rely on someone coming alongside you who they may represent you in court but they also may help you care for your family uh, they may they may prove a case for you they may uh, get evidence in your behalf someone who counsels you along the way someone who advocates for you um, 
and someone who was a friend through the whole process. And so this is used in a variety of ways in, in the Greek culture. We don't really have a parallel for this in our culture. But th- this word helper is probably the best because the Holy Spirit does counsel, but doesn't just counsel, does advocate, but doesn't just advocate. The Holy Spirit actually helps, actually assists, actually does it with you. And this is the amazing reality of the justification that happens when we are cleansed and the sanctification that happens when the Spirit works with us and helps us and works with our spirit to be obedient to God. And so how do we understand what this means to be, that the Spirit is our helper? Turn to Romans chapter 8. You have any questions on the Holy Spirit? Camp out in Romans 8 for a while. One of the richest chapters in all of Scripture. I want you to look at verse 26 through 28, and then you're going to keep your finger there because we'll be back there in just a moment. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Paul picks up on this idea. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He is a helper, our intercessor. But it's interesting, too, because later on in verse 34, is going to say that Christ is our intercessor. So ultimately, This Holy Spirit is Christ's helper who becomes our helper, who is our interceding voice with our interceder, Christ, who intercedes before the Father. So Father, Son, and Spirit are interceding for us. The Spirit within us, Christ before us, and the Father above us. Make sense? And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we think about prayer, we think about asking, the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. If you're asking according to your own will, you are not asking in the Spirit. If you're asking selfishly, that is not according to the will of God. And the Spirit is whole help in us. It's for us to be obedient to Christ and to bring glory to God according to God's will. And this, the verse that everyone loves to quote, and this is the context of we know that for those who love God, same concept in John, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So it is the spirit that helps us love God, the spirit who tells us, who intercedes for us in ways that we can't understand and stirs our affections to the Lord. And that is how good things work out, because the spirit is working in us according to God's will. Remember, keep your finger there for a moment. But back in John, he says that I give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the culmination of God with us, the permanence of God in us forever. Take comfort in that. Take heart in that. If your faith and trust is in Christ, the spirit of God who he sent is with you forever. And that should encourage us every day as we stumble through this life and make us look forward to rejoicing that forever we will be bound to Christ by his spirit. Even, verse 17, this just means specifically, even the spirit of truth. He's not just the helper, but he's the spirit, spirit of truth. 
He's the possessor and arbiter of truth. He is the one who decides what is true. He is the one who weighs truth from falsehood. We're going to get into that more next week. But when Jesus says, I am the truth, and he says, I send another, I am sending another one to remind you of truth. I am sending another one to confirm the, 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 the truth. I am sending my spirit, who is my truth, which the world cannot receive, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The, no, the world cannot receive and know the spirit. All right, so how do we understand this? We can't see or know anything without aid. Without our eyes, we are not aided to see anything. Without a microscope, we cannot see smaller particles than what our eyes can determine. Without binoculars, we can't see far distances. Without a telescope, we can't see into the sky. Without infrared, we can't see in the darkness. We need aids to see. And it is the Holy Spirit who aids us to see God. And without the Holy Spirit, we cannot see them. And the world can't. Without the Holy Spirit, you're trying to explain color to a blind man. You're trying to explain what's under a microscope to someone who's never seen trying to explain what's happening in the dark to someone who doesn't have infrared goggles. You cannot see and know without the Spirit. It is only for those who are sanctified and washed in the blood of the Son, those who are justified from all uncleanliness, like Ezekiel says. Those ones are the ones who get a heart of flesh that can know and see. And they get the promise of the Holy Spirit forever. It is the Spirit of truth for the disciples who is in the disciples, for with us forever. Back in Romans chapter 8, I want to back up a few verses to verse 7. Romans 8, 7, so just keep your, your finger there. Look at here, same concept. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Star this, underline it, circle it. There is no doing things from God in the flesh. There is no good things in the flesh. It is impossible. You can not. You, however, listen to how Paul qualifies this. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ's righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. This is why it's better that he would leave. Because it is the Spirit who breathes life. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave now dwells in us. This is God's Spirit. This is God with us. The Holy Spirit is not some circus show to put on a bunch of misdirection acts. The Holy Spirit is the very dwelling place of God that breathes life into the dead. Which you cannot please God without the Spirit. And when you please God, it is because the Spirit dwells within you. 
you know him. Back in John. The world neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. Same thought here. I will not leave you as orphans. Remember earlier on, he told them little children. Speaks to them. He knows He knows their spiritual condition. What marks an orphan? An orphan has no family name, no heritage, no guidance from, 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 from parents, no, no help. They're alone. I will not leave you alone. There's a famous account of when Socrates died. All of his students lost it. They felt like their, their father died. They looked to him for everything and he's just gone. They're without hope. If you attach yourself to anyone else and they leave, you are without hope. But Jesus will not leave his own like that. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Because where the spirit of Christ is, there is Christ. He is speaking eschatologically, yes, in the future, I am coming to you again. But he knows we need him now. He's thought of everything. I will come to you in a mere matter of 40 days. I will send my spirit and my spirit will be with you. And I will be there with you. I will not leave you as orphans. This is why believers, we should love the doctrine of adoption. We should love the idea that we have no hope. Orphans lost at the fall. We have no heritage. We have nothing to call our own, but through Christ, we have the riches of eternity, a room in our Father's mansion, and the Holy Spirit forever, the communion of, of, of saints, the list of all the righteousness that we have in Christ, we see in First Peter, and all these other blessings because of our adoption, because we are no longer orphans. And that is for the comfort and encouragement of believers. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet, a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. A little while, this is impending. This is, this is coming up. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me. So this, this little while, this, this, this coming up, this is, um, this is resurrection and ascension language. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. Let's, let's break this down. In a little while, the world won't see me, my body. My body will not be here, but you will see me, my spirit. And because I live, because I am raised to life by the power of God, the same power of God that will bring me out of the grave will raise you to new life. The world won't see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you live. Take heart in this. Don't let your hearts be troubled, little ones. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to be put in the grave, but that is not the end of the story. I will live. You will live. Take heart in that. And this is our inseparable connection to Christ. This is the Holy Spirit poured out in a new covenant. Life in Christ. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. We're going to spend more time on this when we get to John 17, but think of how incredible this is. 
that the unity that he speaks of with the Father, I and the Father, and the Father in me, and you in me, union with Christ should just bring us to our knees in awe. That the God of the universe, that the triune God, dwells with us in such a way that we are unified with him, inseparable from God as the Son is from the Father. The resurrection is joyous to us. He lives, we live. God dwells with us. Our home is with God. He makes his home with us, in us. This is a cosmic reality that we can't begin to understand. But we can rejoice in because of the resurrection, because Jesus went away, because he sent the Holy Spirit as a reminder to us. Everybody with me? And because Jesus wants us to get this, and because this is important, he reiterates it. Because this is not just cheap grace that is just thrown out into the field and and, and applied to, to everyone. This is conditional. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Has and keeps. This is possessive nature. He who has my word and hides it in my heart and applies it. The hearer and the doer of my word. Whoever has my commandments and keeps it, he it is who loves me. Do you love him? Do you have his word hidden in your heart? Do you do it? Do you love to do it? Because it's easy to throw around the word love. How many men abuse women in the name of love? How many people have adulterous affairs in the name of love? How many people do selfish things in the name of love of self? Do you love him? Do you love his commandments more than you love your own comfort and pleasure? Because true love, biblical love, thinks of itself last, like Christ did. Do you love me enough to love me with all your heart, your mind, and your soul? And love my word and hide it in your heart that you may not sin against me. Do you love me like that? How does he make himself known to those who love him? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. We can get into that manifesting in just a second. But this arises a natural question. As the disciples often do, they ask good questions. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, starts to think here. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? The word manifest means to make visible. How will you make yourself known and visible to us and not the rest of the world? Jesus has a classic Jesus answer. As he often does, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Thanks, Jesus, for making that clear for us. But he does, and my father will love him. And we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. That is how he manifests himself. He manifests himself by abiding with them. Love 
is the condition of God manifesting himself. He ups the ante. If you love me, the Father and I will manifest ourselves to you. We will come to you. What does it mean that we will manifest ourselves? We will make our home with you. We will dwell with you. And so this raises an important question. Well, if God's love is required, excuse me, if our love is required for him to make our home with us, does that mean that God's love is conditional? People have always told me God's love is unconditional. This is an if-then statement. God's love is conditional. The condition is the love of God poured out on us and our love in response to that. This is clear. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. The love of God will never be unreciprocated. God places his love on those he has given the capacity to love. Those who has given his spirit. Is God love unconditional? Yes. For those he has placed his love on. For those who now have his love, who he makes his home with? Yes. Once love is applied, there are no further conditions that need to be met except for belief in Christ. And those who believe will love him while their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. So is God's love unconditional? Yes. To those he gives his unconditional love to. But the condition is the love of Christ poured out for sin so that we can love God how he loves us. God just doesn't make himself visible to those he sets his love on. He makes his home with them. We talked about this last week. The same word that is used in verse 2, in my father's house there are many rooms, there are many abiding places. I will, we will make our abiding place with you. It's a dwelling place. So we can trace this through. That the Father sent the Son to reconcile us. Once reconciled, the Son sends the Spirit to sanctify us. Making us a suitable dwelling place. A temple for the Holy Spirit. A place that is suitable in worship for God. We are sanctified. Not for our sake, so that God may dwell in us. So that God may not dwell with sin. God is glorified because he makes his house in us. And that becomes our glory, that our God resides in us. When God makes his home with you, he doesn't move the next time a better opportunity comes. It is forever. He is not fickle like we are. Thank God our, our salvation is not dependent on our own emotions or our own ability to keep up something that we are unable to. This is the nature of the new covenant of God's love. And so that means that the reverse is also true. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. More on this next week. And the world and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's not just my words. It's the one who sent me. If you don't love me, if you don't keep my commandments. You don't love the father. How can you keep them if you don't know them? You must know them before you can keep them. And you can't keep them. And if you don't keep them, you don't love him. You deny him. And we are either one of these two categories. That's it. There's no third option. Either we love the Lord and he is pleased with us and he dwells with us. Or we hate him. Everyone in this room fits in one of those categories. Do you love him? 
Do you want to be obedient to Him? Does He dwell within you? Or do you desire to be your own God? Or do you desire to obey the urgings of your flesh for the sake of your own glory? So just a couple final thoughts. For those who believe we are marked by the name of Christ, we speak, act, ask in his name. And our high priest is faithful to answer because we are his. In home, the thing we all desire and we all look for is where God is. Home is where God dwells, where the Holy Spirit is. What he dwells, what he does in his people, we are to be people who are marked by the love and obedience and the fellowship of God. We are fellowship with him and with one another. That is what is to mark the Christian. And this is what it means to have an abundant life in Christ. Everything else is just icing on the cake. If we have just that, the love and obedience and fellowship of the, with the triune God, we have everything we need. And so let's rejoice in this as we approach his table. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you are such a loving God that you would set your love on us. That in our sin, you would provide means that we could never provide on our own. You would take on flesh and die for us. That you would come in spirit and dwell within us. That we might have fellowship with you. Let us approach this fellowship table boldly. As those justified and sanctified in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we may be united as one. That we may be a faithful bride who loves you, loves your word, and loves to be obedient to you, and loves to be pleasing to you in all that we do. Because we love, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray.